Blog Talk Radio. everybody and welcome to the Thursday evening of the Masters edition of Golf Talk Live. Welcome everybody and glad you could join us here. Got a great show for you tonight. Of course, I'm your host Ted Odorico and joining me here in just a few moments, I have the honor of, of two great uh, golf professionals, Allison Kurt and Clint Wright are going to be joining me here and I'll tell you just a little bit about them in a second. Uh, and then a little bit later in the broadcast, I'm going to be joined by Byron Casper, uh, son of legendary Billy Casper on this special Masters edition of Golf Talk Live. Thank you for joining me. Let me just remind everybody, of course, we are live from 6 to 8 p.m. Central tonight. Uh, that's 7 to 9 uh, on the uh, East Coast, and that would be 4 to 6 for you under Pacific time. Um, if you want to call in any time during the live broadcast, you're welcome to do so. The number to call is area code 646-716-4667. We'd love to hear from you and get your predictions on who's going to win the tournament this weekend. Um, also, uh, just to remind everybody, uh, if you're looking to find us, obviously if you're here tonight, you know how to get a hold of us. But for those of you that are a little kind of sketchy on this, go to blogtalkradio.com and up in the search key type Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the main page. And always on the live broadcast, the current show is always at the top. Um, but for some reason, if you're not able to join us during the live broadcast, you can scroll down a little bit into the on-demand section. And, of course, as I've mentioned many times before, the programs are all auto-recorded uh, after the live broadcast, and you can listen to them at your leisure. But you don't want to miss tonight. We've got lots of great stuff to talk about. And uh, we're going to be uh, unveiling a little bit later on, with, when Byron joins me, we're going to be unveiling a contest, a majors champion contest uh, for couples. Uh, here on the show and giving you a great uh, opportunity to win uh, a really, really great prize and a, a little trip to uh, Southern California. And we'll talk about that as uh, the evening progresses. But uh, in the meantime, let me bring on my, my guests that are waiting very patiently here. Uh, first up, of course, is Allison Kurt. She's a PJ Master Professional as well as an LPJ Professional in Instruction. Uh, she's the Director of Instruction at the Wood Ranch Golf Club. And she's also a Marriage and Family Therapist Registered Intern. And she was the 2012 LPG, LPJ excuse me, Teacher and Club Professionals Western Teacher of the Year. Uh, she's also TPI certified, and she's featured instructor on the Golf Channel's Swing Fix. And right alongside, of course, is my good buddy, Mr. Clint Wright. He's a 30-year member of the PGA, as well as a partner at TGM Golf. And he's a big proponent, as I've mentioned many times, of the R3 approach, and uh, certainly one of my favorite guests here on Golf Talk Live. Uh, Allison, Clint, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Well, thanks, Ted. Looking I, forward to talking. I, I appreciate. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to shut up now and give you guys a chance to do some talking here in a moment. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you very much. And I know, obviously, everybody wants to sort of be glued to their television, um, you know, here on Masters Week, and especially the first night to see how things are going to go. So let, let's just talk a couple of things. You know, you were mentioning off air. Uh, a couple of things. First off, of course, uh, if you've been tuning into the to the uh, Masters today, 
uh, especially here lately, you see that uh, Jordan Spieth is, is leading the tournament. That's, of course, last year's uh, winner of the Masters. Uh, he's currently, uh, Clinton, I think you said he's 6-under? Yeah, well, he finished 6-under with 66. That's right. Right. So he's got a, a, good, uh, a good lead, if you will, going into uh, tomorrow's round. And then also we had uh, not so good news for, for Mr. Ernie Els. Uh, he finished, uh, and you corrected me here, I, I originally heard it was a 10, uh, a 10 on the scorecard for hole number one, but it was, a, I guess, dropped down to a nine. So he finished, I, I believe you said, with an 80, correct? That's correct. He shot 80. I'm not real sure right. what the details were. They just announced that they, they, that they miscounted or something. I don't know. Right. And, you know, that brings me to, to really the first question that I want to ask both of you. And, and Clint, I'm going to let you start first just um, just to sort of follow up on that. But um, obviously there's a lot of preparations going into to coming into a major um, physically, mentally, and emotionally. I'm going to let each of you take a stab at that. Um, some come better prepared than others. What are some of the things that the players need to do to prepare for this major? Clint? Yeah. That's a that's a big question. I mean, I think well, there's eighty eighty something players in the tournament. This is the smallest field of any major, and they all come different. I mean, right. I think they all have their own way of getting prepared. You've got the, you know, just going down the leaderboards. You've got all the old guys like me that are that are playing because they they're past champions that are right uh, there trying to to do the best they can. They know they're most likely not going to be in contention to win. Uh, they have different goals. Maybe make the cut you know, play well, then you, you've got the, the guys, the amateurs that have only, you know, their first time, uh, they have mm-hmm. to prepare different. I mean, um, so, I mean, I think it's a, obviously it's a mixed bag on how they prepare, but, and certainly, you know, trying to play their way into contention or play themselves into playing conditions for the first major of the year is, is huge for these guys. Um Particularly for the you know the McElroys and the people that are the major tournaments is what matter to them. You um, know, they, it's like the World Series. I mean, it's it's really what they focus on. And it's yeah, obvious and, with Speak shooting the best Ronnie shot all year. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, and and I'm sure he's been just chomping at the bits to to get out there and, and play and and to have a, a good finish like that to the first uh, day of the Masters certainly is going to be good for his confidence. <laughs> um, Alice, oh, let me yeah. throw. Yeah, let me throw the question to you, Allison, real quick here. Um, you know, if you were working with with a a golf uh, player that was heading, and it could be professional or amateur, doesn't really matter. Um, what would you what what thoughts would you want to to sort of put in their head to, to in preparation? And what are some things physically um, that you would want them to do to prepare for for an important tournament like this? I think first of all to get get out and past the uh, labels that are put on this tournament. It's the biggest tournament of the year. It's the Masters. There's so much history. Right. All, of, all of these different scripts and stories can really start to play um, havoc on a player's mind, and they get so caught up into um, this meaning of the tournament, and they lose sight of what their job is, at hand is, and that is to put the golf ball um, at their intended target. So if I had a player that was either playing in the Masters or prepping for a big tournament, there would definitely be a, a plan in place, um, more of like a 90-day to, to six-month plan for how to prep right. for this sort of type of tournament. Um, and obviously less skill would be 
emphasized right before the tournament and more playing and creativity and mental approaches would be emphasized. Um, so I would have a player who, if they had the opportunity to see the golf course ahead of time, um, such as playing Augusta or they you know, maybe played it a couple years in a row, to do a lot of prep work, visualizing what they would do on site, everything from how they would get to their locker, to the range, um, how would they approach the first tee, what do the crowds look like, to really create like an in vivo experience to sort of desensitize themselves, if they will, for the shock when they get there. Um, and I think that because there's so much talk, there's so much publicity about this particular tournament masters that it's really easy to get caught up into all of that. And, and oftentimes really great players and very skilled players have some failures because they might right. have um, a poor mental state for that particular um, tournament. I would really suggest that players that are prepping for big tournaments come up with a plan, um, you know, 90 days at least out for how you want to get prepared for it and to do a lot of work mentally on the game, seeing how they want to perform and, and believing um, when they get there, that they can match that performance as they do in their normal practice schedule. Yeah, well, well said. Um, how, how big? Um, and again, you both welcome to uh, to chime in on this. Clint, I'll let you sort of lead on this one here, and then Allison, by all means, uh, feel free to to jump in. But how big are emotions going to play on this weekend? Uh, you know, Allison kind of touched a little bit about this with all the hype that that comes in. Um, you know, being quote unquote the biggest tournament of the year, um, first major, that sort of thing. But how how big of an effect are, are players' emotions going to be coming into this tournament, Clint? Well, it's obvious. It's huge. I mean, that that for years, you know, they talked about how Nicholas was was a better, you know, the best player, and he certainly right. was the best player. He wasn't necessarily the best ball striker. But right. he had the ability to control his emotions when it counted. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You put these guys out there just in a day-to-day event, and they're going to knock the flag down all day. Yeah. And the emotions are obviously going to change their body. So it's a, it's the it is the key factor. I think Allison just pointed out it's a it's yeah. the emotional build up to even ninety days out, uh, how you're approaching, how you're going to control your emotions, and uh, when you get there. And not only is this the first major, but some of these guys, the only majors they'll play in, particularly some of the amateurs, some of these guys, they don't maybe they're not qualified for the U.S. Open or they don't qualify for the PGA. It may be the only one they play in this year. So it, it's a huge event, obviously, uh, for all the players. But the emotions, they're all good ball strikers, it's obvious. If they're sure. in a tournament, they're the best 90 players in the world. So the winner of this event really to any major event and even maybe on the t- any event on the tour, is going to be the person that strikes the ball well and controls their ability to play at that particular moment in time. Can Do they have enough emotional stability to have faith in their ability right now? Not next week, not last week, but right now. And how they manage that is going to determine the winner. I mean, you, you're you not watching. I'm sitting here watching it while as we're going. The guy that's hit the ball the closest to the hole is Shane Lowry. He ain't made a putt in the last three holes, and he didn't have anything more than 10 feet. Right. So he's striking the ball, but he's, it's just not going in. Um, so you'll see. I mean, if you watch the interview of Jason Day after the, turn, the round of day, mm. and you'll see the emotions. Yeah. Uh, you know, he uh, – 
He he blew five shots on the last three holes. And you yeah, can tell. Yeah, yeah, and and that's going to certainly affect his demeanor going into tomorrow. Uh, Alex, oh, yeah. let me. Yeah, let me let me ask you this. You know, we we touched a little bit about on Ernie L's. Um, you know, going through his mind. You know, right out of the gate, he's he's scored a nine on the first hole. Um, you know, as I understand it from from what I heard in the media, you know, he got on the green, was looking at making par from you know two feet or less, and ends up you know getting a few other strokes, basically slapping it back and forth until and, and scoring a nine. That's got to affect um, him emotionally, and that's going to affect his confidence. What would you say to a player that's had that experience? in order to re-energize him to going into tomorrow? Well, I would say after the round, I definitely want to process it and see what are some pieces that they could have done better. So I didn't particularly see that hole um, or the coverage of it, so I don't know if he engaged in his pre-shot routine, if he used right. um, some techniques to manage his emotions better, um, if he um, maybe skipped any of those steps and let emotion overwhelm him and he became sort of a victim to it instead of uh, being able to control and manage himself better. We don't know. Um, but if I had a player that came off the golf course that started off with a nine, um, had maybe a couple of double bogeys uh, or bogeys as they finished up, and that last um, was really prominent in their mind. There's there's a couple of techniques that I can certainly work with a golfer through a clinical setting with one right. of the techniques I use is called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And so when an athlete has a pretty traumatic experience, such as, you know, getting an eye on the first hole, it's going to stay in their, in their memory bank and their body is going to uh, continue to experience it. And so we want that athlete to be able to process and consolidate that memory as quickly as possible so that it doesn't bleed into the next day. So I would probably use that technique with my particular, you know, client that I'm working with um, to make sure that they could process that experience so that it doesn't create an emotional trigger anymore. Um, And to really look at it not as what did you do wrong, but what can we do better or what can you do better tomorrow coming into it? Because, you know, Ernie Els is talented enough that he can go out and fire 65. Um, and potentially be right back in it. So I think that's really cool about um, what, what we're seeing a lot of these players do is that um, they have the skill set to be resilient and to bounce back from an upset like that. But uh, you don't want to let it linger into the next day because we don't want to have that filed in our memory bank as, as being a louder memory so that it's really impeding someone's performance. We want to um, be able to process it, consolidate it, and let it go um, on its merry way so that we have some room for um, some better experiences to kind of add to our confidence resume, if you will. Right. Again, well said. Um, Allison, I, w- I want to continue with you for a second because just as you were talking, it, it another sort of thought on this same topic kind of popped in my head, and uh, I want to get it out before before it gets lost. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> I'll forget all together. But um, – you know, when a player experiences something like this, obviously their nerves are, are going to be affected as well. Who do you think has a, a greater chance of success? Um, a, a younger player who's maybe got a little stronger nerves or maybe a more seasoned or older player uh, whose nerves aren't quite as steady uh, as it once were? Who do you think has a, a better likelihood of accomplishing what you just talked about? That is a really great question. 
like uh, that's why that's why I had to get it out. Or an orange. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I had to get it out. It was too good of a question to pass. But you understand what I'm saying. Uh, you know, yep. obviously it, it depends on the individual. It depends on the experience. But there are some sure. advantages, and ner- nerves are going to come into play in a situation like this. So, um, mm-hmm. give us an idea of, of how that uh, how that would play out. So I would say that if defaulting to this answer, I would have to say the junior, and the reason why is because there's less of a history that's filed in their in their memory of right. past failures. So you've got someone who's in their 60s, and they've got a whole list of successes and failures that they can choose to highlight. Well, you've right. got an 8-year-old who maybe has started golf and who hasn't played for, for decades and decades. Um, plus, I think a, a child's mind certainly works differently than an adult's mind where they may not be able to uh, retain um, as much of the emotional piece, uh, mm. as much as the forethought of how is this going to impact my future. I mean, we know that um, as far as looking at brain development, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully finished developing until 21 or 22 years of age, and that's where judgment, assessment, and, and thought in the future really comes into play. So you've got someone who doesn't have a fully developed brain yet. Well, they go through this incident of having a large number, you know, I'll be like, all right, going on to the next tournament. Not going to really retain with them as much. Right. Um, so I would, I would have to default to the junior. I think they would be a little bit more resilient, just based on um, not quite as much experience and not quite as much a history of failure to be able to reference versus a, a veteran. Yeah, and and Clint, I think you would agree with that as well. I mean, you not know, we're, a, we're both. You know, I, I must be a cripple. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't agree with it at all. You know, I, because I'm going to stand here. I got to defend the 60-year-olds, okay? <laughs> no, I, I'm beyond. And, and I know now I feel really good because I, I hadn't full my brain hadn't fully matured at 21 years old. So all those bad decisions I made was because my brain hadn't fully matured yet. Okay, but you know, from a player standpoint. I, at my age, I'm I'm not quite 60 yet. But as an older player, and if you've played tournament golf, you you you've made eagles and you've made quadruples. Right. You're gonna just go on and play the next hole. You know. So experience, I think, plays a huge role here. Also, desire. What is my desire of what Ernie Els was trying to do? Right. You know, it's obviously an embarrassment to him. Sure, but you know, as far as him having a bounce back here, I think Ernie L's got enough experience along with us other old guys that that we're going to manage that better than maybe an inexperienced player would. Hmm. So uh, Allison's got a great point. I, th- I think from a from a brain establishment and and how you're doing it, the memory banks, and you know, I'm going to forget it. I'm gonna, I don't have a lot of negative experiences. I'm going to just go to the next hole. I think that that at some point. That also plays into the more seasoned and, and senior player too, right? You know, I, I think that the middle ground here that that thirty to forty year old may have a harder time bouncing back from it than what a junior would, and also a senior. I think the junior and senior approach to that would be very similar. Um, hmm. One being going with Allison's point that hey, we don't have that experience, uh, we don't have it filed away as negative. But as I grow and I play enough competitive golf and have my ups and downs, I should learn how as a senior player to adapt and to move beyond that particular moment. You know, um, 
And, and you see it like today, Ricky Fowler makes double bogey on the first hole because he's pressing, trying to do something out of the box. So, yeah, I, I get her point, and I don't disagree right. with it. But but I think there also is that at that some point in your playing career, you breach back into that that junior attitudes. Okay, well, I made a you know I made a nine. You know, I played in a tournament wasn't too long ago, first pro am that we played in up here. First hole, I made a nine. Honest to God. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I shoot nine over. For, you know, I'm, I'm uh, that nine was the only over par. You know, it was. So, but you just keep playing, and right. you, and you learn from it. You know, here I am up there, different level, not trying to hit it in the water to the left and hit it out of bounds twice to the right. <laughs> I should have just went ahead and hit it in the water. You know, yeah. but the point, I guess the point is long-winded, is that I think that there is a correlation between the junior player that Allison says, and I agree with, I was joking, I disagree with her, but I, I think that it's a point that we reach that we're almost like that kid playing again. Right. That we learn how yeah. to manage it, maybe a little differently, but we do learn how to manage it and go on and, and try to do the best we can on the next one. Yeah, I, I agree, and, and I think both answers. There's really no right or wrong answer. I, I think oh, no. it, you know, Allison, um, you know, your point is is very valid as well uh, as Clint. So obviously, it, it depends on the individual players. Uh, everybody is different. Some people can, uh, you know, rally much quicker uh, and come back from uh, you know a situation like Ernie Els did. Right. But I I, I see that you know both points are are, are very valid. And it just makes for, you know, it's kind of some interesting uh, thoughts, if you will, uh, on how Ernie's going to deal with this tomorrow. Is he, you know, is he going to draw from that memory bank of, of you know, uh, previous tournaments and say, okay, this is, you know, uh, yeah, it's an embarrassment, as, as you pointed out, Clint, but uh, I know that, uh, you know, as Allison said, I can come back and shoot a 65 tomorrow and be right back in the tournament again. So, without um, a doubt. Right. So there's lots of flexibility there as well. All right. Let's talk about the Augusta's greens. Um, you know, this is something that has been talked about for, for years about uh, being very quick and fast. Um, Allison, I'm going to let you start off again. Uh, just in your opinion, is there a technique for uh, playing Augusta type greens? Practice on concrete. Probably. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine. Um, <laughs> I would say that, yeah, if you know the type of, of field you're going to be playing on, you know the type of circumstances that you're going to be faced, then you can create like or similar um, conditions to sort of prep for that. So for individuals that are prepping for the Masters and they know the greens are going to be, be hard, I mean, you'd probably want to put on some surfaces that didn't have any grass to sort of get the feel of how shocking this might be. Um, you know, putting on smooth concrete into a hole and kind of getting getting a feel for what the conditions are going to be like to prep you not only mentally but emotionally for the shock of what you're going to experience uh, when you get to that sort of that purity of playing surface. And so technique-wise, I think there's um, definitely some modifications that can be made in the technique um, in regards to taking a little bit of mass off the putter head as it's swinging through so you don't have as much force driving into the golf ball, you know, very – very simply, a lot of players may uh, line up the golf ball just slightly outside of center or near the toe of the putter, depending on the type of um, equipment that they're using, to take a little bit of mass right. off of that um, to get the ball just, you know, started. But um, for the players that I coach now, if we're aware of the type of conditions that they're going to be in, then we prep for that. And whether that's putting on concrete, whether that's, um, you know, modifying the technique a little bit, we want to create similar conditions 
to that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I agree with that, Clint. You know, I, I know that you work uh, a lot with the short game, um, mm-hmm. and and particularly putting in that. What what's your thoughts on on Augustus Greens? Obviously, these guys uh, are are going to well, face a lot of challenges. Sure. If you watch the event today, if you go back and see the highlights, you know some of these guys hit the ball all over the lot today. I mean, yeah. the wind was blowing; it was sailing. See, I'm going to back it up. I know that there's very little chance that I can mimic the conditions that are going to show up at Augusta through the weekend. It's just a unique place. Right. But I do know that, the, and not to be funny, that the way you beat the greens at Augusta is to stay below the hole. Yeah. Okay, particularly in the 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 greens that they miss in regulation. If you watch it today, Jordan Speaks, I bet he didn't hit nine greens in regulation today. He shot 66. Wow. He may have hit 10 or 11, maybe, okay, at best. But he didn't give anything back. He didn't make a bogey today. Well, if you watch the round, when he had putts, who had pitching the ball up, he pitched the ball into the best place to putt from. So I'm going to back the theory up one, is that I'm going to, I'm going to do what Allison said. I'm going to try to find the best conditions I can that will mimic the putting. But I want to mimic the conditions that my third shot is going to be coming in there when I'm trying to save par. Yeah. I'm going to get my chances for birdie. The par fives are all accessible. You know, I'm going to get my chances. And, but I want to be able to pitch the ball when I miss the greens. I want to be able to control the pitch the best I can to get the ball into the best place to putt from. That's that's yeah. where I'm going to focus my my a lot of my preparation and my scoring game is not necessarily just going to be in putting it's going to be in the more in pitching because mm-hmm. the greens are perfect I mean these guys if they get the easy putt it, it they're going to make it because the yeah. greens are perfect they're rolling at great speed you know so their pitching quality and their success in pitching the ball when they miss the green is going to be a key factor and I. I I will bet you if you charted it, the winner of this golf tournament on Sunday is going to be the person that pitched the ball when they missed the green, pitched the ball more often below the hole than above it. Now that's a bold, yeah. that's a bold prediction, but I'll that's what it'll be. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> jot that I'm gonna jot that down right now. Clint. And nobody's <laughs> gonna chart it because nobody else cares but me, you know. <laughs> but uh, but that if you watched it today. And I watch it in great interest because I, I teach a lot of that, how to score. So I'm watching it in great interest to be able to point out things. And it, it's all about pitching the ball where you can put the easiest from. That's Jordan Speaks. You know, that's what he's always done. Yeah, and, you know, and, he, and that – sorry, go ahead. No, the point being, like at the, uh, the U.S. Open, uh, you know, that's a couple of times he missed a green in bad spots. He wasn't trying to pitch it close. He pitched it where the putt was easy. You know, he, you know, ten footer. He he makes them all because if you watch where he's pitching the ball to, he's pitching the ball into a, into a, a relatively easy putt to make. He's yeah, not, and that all, you know, he's not making those real big swing swingers for par. He's making straight yeah. putts for par. Yeah, he's giving himself the best chance um, without a doubt. You know, Right, and and you're right. You know, if you're not going to hit the green, then you want to make sure that your recovery shot is going to put you in a place that's going to give you the the best opportunity to to make those putts. And you're right. If if you're you know, all over, the, yeah, if you're all over the place, I I, I agree with that. But uh, you know, at the same time too, I think that there 
are situations, as Allison suggested, you know, where you can mimic as, I mean, you're not going to get exact conditions, but certainly, you know, you can, uh, whether it be putting on concrete or, or, or something else, um, to, to sort of mimic the speed and, and get an idea of, of right. uh, what it's like to put on a slick uh, surface like that. All right, let, let's um, let's take this in a little bit different direction. Uh, um, coming into Augusta, and Allison, I'm going to start with you. Should a player go for it right from the get-go, or should they maybe play it a little more conservative, play it safe uh, starting the tournament? So those players that went out today – would it be smart for them to kind of go for it and be a little more aggressive or should they be somewhat conservative? And, and that doesn't mean it don't go for it when the opportunity presents itself, but not be too aggressive uh, right from the start. I think it really depends on how the player is feeling that particular day. I mean, if you've got um, someone who wakes up and they're just really striking the ball and, and everything's going well, you want to go with that flow and just go with whatever groove that they're in. If you've got a player that's maybe, um, a little bit more managing themselves and, and maybe they're not hitting the ball as, as purely as they'd want, they might sort of go into a, a different contingency plan and play a little bit smarter to kind of manage it. So I, I do think there is some scoring um, strategies that take place, right. place this week. But, but ultimately, I mean, if you, if you play around and you're too conservative and you're only a couple of under and then you've got a player who is a little bit more bolder and they got to six or seven under – you don't want to be kicking yourself walking off the golf course saying, I left a piece of myself out there. So I think that the individual needs to make that determination shot by shot um, how they want to approach it. Do they need to be aggressive on this, or is that something they need to be a bit more conservative on? And I think that's where a good caddy relationship comes into, into play. Because if you've got a great relationship with your caddy, you can have some dialogue about what's the best strategy shot per shot. I think it's a little bit tough to make a, a general umbrella statement to say, okay, we're going to play aggressive today or we're going to play conservative right. today because you never know what's going to happen in a particular round. Um, and to stay in the process and really to work it shot by shot, I think you can make some better decisions that way. Right. Yeah. And and that's, that's so true. Um, Clint, about, what about your thoughts on that? I mean, you know, well, obviously I, you've I got, think, you know, you yeah. talk about Ricky Fowler kind of, stepping on it there the first few holes and it and it kind of backfired yeah. a little bit on well him. he actually stepped on the first hole he made double on the first hole and then birdie the next two um he just he got it out, out of the fairway on the first hole in the trees and just overplayed the shot and hit a tree bounced around a little bit but i, I think Allison, she's correct i mean she made a point earlier in the show about how you'd get ready to prepare to, to play and part of that was a plan a kind of a scoring plan you know these guys are so good they know what holes on any golf course suits their bread and butter shot? They know which holes they got good chances on, which holes they may not. And I think most of them are going to come and say, "Hey, look, you know, it's like Nicholas. I saw the thing with Nicholas in '86. You know, he said, well, 66 to tie, 65 to win. So how do I go out there and shoot 65? Yeah. You know, these guys, how, do, how am I going to shoot 10 under for four days? What holes give me the best chance of making birdies? What holes do I need to just make par and go on? Okay, and they and they they understand that they know what fits their game. Their caddies know what they fit their game. I think she made a very valid point about the caddy. The caddy keeps the player on plan. The caddy, yeah. a good one, keeps his player on a level emotional keel. Yeah, we just made four birdies in a row, but this next hole doesn't suit our swing much. So let's let's settle down here, keep ourselves under control. 
make a good swing, move on to the next hole. Right. You know, that high and low, the caddy keeps them, keeps them in there. But I, I think the, 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 the way these guys will approach it is where you put the hammer down a day or get there. It's a 72-hole tournament. They count the first hole just like they count the 72nd hole. Okay? They're going to come in with a plan on how they're going to how they're going to try to play that golf course for the week. Um, very similar to a NASCAR driver figured out how they're going to drive this track, but the conditions change. So they got their base plan, but at some point that base plan may change. Right. And, and again, I agree with Allison, that, that's that caddy-player relationship. Is when, do you, when do you let your guy go, and when do you kind of say, okay, let's stay on plan here? Uh, and it's, it's a cool – I think it's it's a very – um, exciting thing to see that that makeup of caddy and player, uh, and how well they work together, and and how that caddy manages his player. Yeah, and, and that that's a great uh, point as well. You know, when you when you look at some of the the really top players, um, you know Freddie Couples and and you know of course Jack, but um, uh, Phil Mickelson. You know, have all had really, really good cat, and certainly there are plenty of other caddies out there that are that are fantastic. Certainly. Those sort of stick in, in mind um, as as some of the the better ones. Um, and you know, if you look at how they played in in difficult situations, their caddies certainly did play a, a big role. Um, you know, there were oftentimes, you know, when a caddy, you know, even Steve Williams when he was caddying Tiger. You know, obviously Steve had a very aggressive type personality, but there were times when he knew that that Tiger, you know, needed to, to ratchet it back a little bit on, on certain holes. Which brings me to another question. You know, Nicholas was always, you know, would always talk about how sometimes a course uh, or maybe a particular hole, uh, and you kind of alluded to this, uh, Clint, maybe doesn't suit their eye or their swing. What mm-hmm. do you do in a situation like that, uh, Clint? And then and Allison, uh, I'll, I'll let you uh, answer as well. Well, if it doesn't suit your eye, I think you have to figure out how how you're going to play the hole in, in a way that you can, you know, par is still a good score. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't care where you're playing, par is a good score. So if I've got a hole that you know maybe got my number, I'm a little maybe a little bit emotionally uh, distraught with this hole, uh, that that historical thing I just made double here last week or whatever. I'm going to try to figure out, in, in my opinion, way way we talk to people is I'm going to play that hole with my favorite clubs. The average player out there is if this hole doesn't suit my eye hitting a driver, what's my favorite wood to hit? What can I move this thing down the fairway with? My favorite club to hit. I want some confidence going here. I don't want to play a club that I've got, you know, that may not suit this hole. I want to have the best thing in my hand to play a hole that doesn't suit my eye. And then I'm going to play my next favorite club. In range, you know, if I'm if yeah, I'm yeah. in range, I'm gonna take my the club I need to hit to get there. But if I'm not in range, I'm gonna take my favorite club and move it up the fairway again. Right. To get into that third shot, that scoring range to to give myself a best chance of doing the what I can do on this hole that doesn't suit my game. But I I I see it all the time. We take players out on the course, and as they well, what and I ask them what hole don't you like? Well, I take them to that hole. <laughs> because they can, they can, well, they do. See, they can play. Right. They can play their favorite holes really good. I don't need to help them there. Right. I need to help them on the holes that they don't like. And try to help them analyze how am I going to get around my home course hole that I hate? I hate this hole. 
Well, what's your favorite club? I want you to hit that. What's your next favorite club? I want you to hit that. And then all of a sudden, they've made a par, maybe a bogey, where they've been making double and triples. Right, exactly. So that's the way we try to manage it, to survive the hole. Survive it. Now, the tour players and the top echelon players are going to take a different approach. But the average player out there should take their favorite club and survive the hole and go on to their best hole. Move on. You know, um, and and I think the best players in the world do that too. That's why they hit three wood off the tee instead of driver sometimes. Hey, I just need to get it in the fairway yeah, and, and play that, on. Get it in the middle of the yeah. green, two putt, and go on. Yeah, so, you, so all, true, you, true. Both of y'all understand, and most of them do, is that it's not really about how many birdies they make. It's how many they don't give back. They're going to make their share of birdies three, four, five around. But the winner is the guy that doesn't give them back. And that's those holes that don't fit their eye, that they just don't want to give the birdie back on that hole. It's not their best opportunity to make birdie, so just don't give one back. Right. And that, and that Alice, Allison, of course, comes into strategy and, and preparation. Um, you know, as, as Clint's talking about, you know, if you're playing a hole that doesn't really particularly suit your, your eye, um, rather than trying to go at it as you normally would, you have to think with a little bit of strategy. So working with your students, um, Allison, if they come up against a particular scenario that they're not comfortable with, how do you help alleviate? What are some things that you do uh, with your students to help alleviate some of that discomfort? I want to find out what makes them uncomfortable in the first place. Because Mm -hmm. I think even when we start using the script and the belief, this hole doesn't suit my eye, you're already creating a belief about that hole that may not be accurate. You know, right. I can understand if you're a fader of the golf ball and you step up to a, a dog leg right to left. Okay, fair enough. But if you break down the script of this this hole doesn't suit my eye, um, and then you really get down to the nuts and bolts of what's required of me to play this hole, you know, take away these statements and these beliefs about, you know, the, the shot doesn't fit my, my eye or the hole doesn't fit my eye, and just take a look at it as where's the best place for me to position the golf ball right now. I right. need to position it here. Well, what's the best club that's going to get me to that position? Well, it might be different than a driver. Um, so I want to start with a student and really kind of explore with them, um, and this is more of the therapist kind of coming out from me, is, well, what makes you uncomfortable about this hole? Let's examine that. Because if I can reinforce that they've got the skill set to face any obstacle that comes their way. And most of the obstacles that are going to be the most challenging is what comes up in their mind and what comes up in their heart. We can deal with that. And uh, for them to identify, okay, well, maybe it's the, the bunker here that's most uncomfortable because I see that in my, in my vision when I look at the hole. All right, well, we can work with some visualization tools there um, to redirect our attention to what's a better focal point. Or, right. you know, maybe the, uh, they're uncomfortable with, um, hitting a long iron into a green. All right, so why don't we take a look at um, what, what's most uncomfortable about hitting a long iron? Do you have a past history of having a low success rate with it? Um, is there something that you can position yourself better so that you have a little bit more flat footing, if you will, um, for that particular shot? So I, I would take a step back and ask them, let's look at what's making you uncomfortable, and let's break down those scripts. Let's break down the narrative of, of what you're creating here. Because really, it's just a golf hole. It's grass, yeah. and you're hitting a ball on some grass. And let's take all the other stuff that we tend to build up, and let's keep it really simple. 
Yeah, I, I, and I like that. I, I like that approach. Um, certainly both of them are, are great approaches. But I like that particularly, Allison, because I think a lot of times, uh, especially the high handicap golfers out there, um, you know, they see a scenario that, that maybe they're not comfortable with and all of a sudden the, the, the fear and the doubt sort of creep into their mind and they've already lost half the battle before they've even stepped up to the tee box. And, you know, I, I like some, you know, Clint, what you talked about as well. I think that, you know, rather than hitting my driver that's going to go, you know, 250 yards and 40 yards to the right, um, you know, maybe I can hit a, a hybrid off the tee that's going to go maybe 200 yards pretty straight down the fairway. So to me, it makes more sense to ratchet back a little bit and, and select a club that that's, I know I can hit comfortably, um, you know, relatively straight than trying to, you know, get out there on a hole that I, I'm not comfortable with to begin with and playing a, a club that I know is not going to yield the results I need. And, um, you know, so great answer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry. I, I think that the favorite club idea is exactly what I was talking about. It's a matter of, of taking what bothers them about the hole yeah. and backing the fear out. If I'm standing up there on my favorite wood, I'm really not fearful of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm fully confident and i got good positive thinkings about that. And so I go ahead and make a better golf swing um, and then, then move on to the next one. It's all about eliminating, giving the person the tools and the opportunity to eliminate the fear uh, of that hole that they're playing, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, and Allison, you you know you raise a, a very valid point as well. Um, you know because you're you know you've you've played uh, competitively as well as as teach, and you know the difference really between the professionals and the amateurs is when a professional steps up to a hole, uh, he or she sees the position that they want to uh, place the ball in. Where you know the the amateur looks at the bunkers over here and the water out in the front and and so on and so forth. They're looking at all the trouble. And it's not that the professionals don't realize or acknowledge that it's there, but they're not focusing on the trouble. They're focusing on um, where they want to position that ball to, to set things up for, for uh, you know, their approach or what have you. And that's pretty much what you're saying, correct, uh, Allison? Absolutely. If you're, um, if you're more skilled at being able to redirect your attention and, and focusing on where you want the golf ball to go, which is a skill to be able to be built, everyone is capable of doing that. Um, then you have a, a higher chance of hitting that target. And I think um, the pros are more finely skilled at it at their level. I think that's um, integral to them being successful. And I think many amateurs would rather go spend $400 on a driver that they think <laughs> might have them hit that target yeah. versus actually taking yeah. a lesson or improving yeah. their mental game. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple of sessions is working on their mental game and they can save that $400 on the driver and, actually have some more lifelong skills um, for some happiness. So absolutely, I agree with you. Yeah. You know, it reminds me, and Clint, my memory's a little foggy. You might remember the gentleman, but years ago on the Golf Channel, there was a a gentleman, and all I can remember is his first name was Wally, and they shot a video where he went around with a 7-iron, a pitching wedge, and a putter, played a par 5. You know who I'm talking about. I can't think of his name offhand, but um, Uh, he was – but anyways, he he played a a par 5, par 4, par 3, and ended up – one under par and right you know the longest club he had in in, in this uh his bag right. was a seven iron well, and it just know, really goes yeah. to what allison just pointed out i mean you don't Absolutely. have to have this great you know four hundred dollar driver um you know if you're not going to be able to position it very well anyway so <laughs> yeah right? i just got done writing a piece that that we use in some of our clinics why in your handicap coming down we got better equipment 
We've got better golf courses. The golf ball goes further. Why is your handicap not coming down? I mean, you need to answer that question for yourself. Is if you got all this $400 driver and fancy golf balls and the golf courses are great and your score ain't getting any better, you need to rethink what you're doing. But, yeah. you know, I've been around long enough to remember when we played with wooden golf clubs, right? Right. And, Me too. <laughs> okay. And we would, you know, in the winter when we were up in Wisconsin, we obviously do a lot of club repair work. People bring in their clubs. would be a driver, two wood, three wood, and four woods. That's all we had. And the driver was brand new. And the two wood looked like they had been to battle with it. Because they found that they could hit the two wood better. Right. It went straighter. It went further. They were smart. They didn't buy into the advertisements they see every day thinking you needed a you needed a four hundred dollar driver to hit it further. They already had one. It was called a two wood. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and so they figured out that that was the best club for them to hit in order to move the ball down the fairway where they may wanted it to go. You know, I had for years people come, well, I want you to teach me to hit my driver. I said, my my first question to them was, well, how do you hit your three wood? Oh, I hit my three wood fine. I said, okay, there you go. That'll be $50. <laughs> Just keep right. hitting your three wood. Why right. not? You know, and you know? that's the thing, and I, I think this has really added to it. And, and again, it's you know, it's not about bashing the, the equipment uh, no, no, manufacturers no, that's and things like that. Play the clubs you can play the best with. Right, and you know, and that doesn't mean you don't work on you know when you're no. with with your it's, professional on some of the clubs that you're not. Uh, you know, correct. that's where you need to really focus on. But I, I agree. You know, and listen, even the pros. I mean, I can remember there's been um, you know rounds of golf. I mean, Tiger. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, the tournament he was playing in a number of years back, and uh, he barely pulled his driver out. He was hitting two irons, and he was hitting his three-wood a lot. Freddie Couple used to do that as well. Freddie Couple used to play his three-wood on a lot yeah. of holes. I mean, he could hit it just about as far as his driver anyways. Tiger Woods won the British Open one year. I can't remember where the course was. He hit two iron off tee all day. Right, exactly. And And that just furthers the point as well. Um, yeah. All right, Alice. Let, let me uh, let, let's. We got to move on here. Let me uh, ask you this. Uh, you know, being that we've got three more days of, of uh, the first major of the year for the men, anyways. Um, what would you? What can your students and and also the listeners tuning in tonight? What can they take away? What would you like them to take away from watching the Masters this weekend? I love that question because I've already been asking some students um, to watch, and, and it's actually women's first major was last week, the ANA Inspiration. So I was kind of already setting the stage for this back-to-back uh, -back week of majors, if you will. And I said, you know, here's, here's some things that you and I are working on in your individual swing now when you're watching these, these upcoming two events. See if you see them in other players. Look out for them. Get more um, keen with your eye to see what some of the best players in the world are doing, and this is the exact thing that you're working on, because I really want them to activate those mirror neurons, if you will, um, you know, the mirror neurons in the brain that when you're looking at the same activity, it's almost as if your body is doing it. And so let's say I have a student that's working on hip turn and getting a little bit deeper hip turn. If they're able to identify it when they watch Jordan Spieth or they're able to identify it when they watch Lydia Ko, they're actually kind of integrating a little bit about how they can make that better into their own personal golf swing. Um, right. So I, I like them to look at some of the techniques of the players, not that we are necessarily copying, copying their style, 
but for right. them to have a better understanding of what they're going to do in their individual swing by looking at how the best players in the world do that particular motion. Um, I think, too, managing, uh, managing their game. So as they watch some of these players hit some, some shots that don't hit the green, how do they mm-hmm. recover? Uh, yep. If they hit some shots that go into the trees, how do they recover? Uh, because I think there is sometimes a, a limited memory on only the, the great shots that tour yep. players hit. Uh, well, those are just the ones that they put on TV. And yeah. sometimes we don't get a chance to see uh, some of the bad ones. And so how, how are these players recovering from adversity? And that way um, they can see how they might be able to integrate some of those pieces into their own, gra- own game when they face adversity. You know, excellent, um, excellent response, uh, comment, uh, Allison. Thank you for that. You know, one of the things I, I remember, and you're you're right in your point that you don't get to see everything on TV. Of course, with um, editing and and so forth, you certainly do see some, um, you know, bad shots here and there. But uh, for the most part, you see everything sort of running smoothly. Um, but you know, when I used to walk around years ago at the Canadian Open. Um, and watch a lot of the players, one of the things that I used to really watch was how they handled themselves in adversity. And, and by that, I mean, when they did hit a not so perfect shot, um, you know, how did they handle themselves? And it was interesting because compared to amateurs, if you look at most amateurs, when it, they hit a bad shot, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of angst and, and, and so forth. And the professionals sort of just plod along. And, and I'm sure inside there's probably – uh, as, as Ernie and, and um, maybe some of the others today that, that didn't do well on a couple of holes, um, there's certainly some emotion in there, but they seem to be able to put it in check. And that's something that I really want you know, any of my students that might be watching this weekend is to look at the emotion when, when they're given that chance to be able to see that. And uh, Allison, as you said, that they you know, edited out a lot of stuff. But um, you know, that's what I want them to take away as well, is I want them to be able to see um, how the player handles themselves, both um, physically how they recover, but also emotionally how they handle themselves, because that can, uh, I think, add uh, quite a bit uh, of knowledge as well. And Clint, what about you? What about your students uh, that might be watching? Well, you know, I'd, um, I, I think Allison's absolutely correct. What they, the, the, the coverage of a lot of golf tournaments really doesn't do the average player any justice. No, they only they only show the twenty four going in, or they show the terrible shot, but they never show them how they get a get around it. How do they mm-hmm. get you know, like the that I think Jordan Speaks has been hitting like sixty percent of the greens in regulation, and he's still shooting par better. Well, obviously he's hitting you know ten greens around. He's getting the ball up and in eight times, and I'll bet you they ain't showed it up and in once. What's he right. doing when he misses a green? You know, the average guy out there is hitting maybe three or four greens around. You yeah. know, they need to be focused on what they're going to do when they don't hit the green. But I, I think that if if you if you if you look at it, what I ask my players to do, and some you you can get them to do it, but I encourage them to go. We're lucky here; we've got several tour stops that they can go to, and simply watch the way they play. Yeah. What's their What's their tactics? when they don't hit the ball on the green. Watch how they play the game. They all hit it good, and that's my great point. Watch how they, they do their technique in their full swings. You know, cyber vision years ago, and even today, is a great thing to mimic and to see what another player is doing. It's very helpful, I agree. But most importantly, too, is to watch how they use what they have. Yeah. Watch how they get themselves around the golf course. 
You know, the average person, the reason that the handicaps are not coming down is that you can't hit it good enough to make up for poor scoring. We know that. Um, at some point, the average guy's got to, and I think the tour players do this, they accept the fact that they're hitting the ball okay, and then they go about refining their skills of playing. Yeah. How are they going to use their skills? The average player out there never accepts the fact that their skill is good enough. But once they accept that it's good enough right now that they can go out and try to use what they have and to do the best they can, then they can begin to focus on learning how to play. And that's what both the women on the LPGA Tour and the men on the PGA Tour, they are the best players. Because we've all seen you know, great ball strikers that couldn't get it in the hole. These are the best players in the world. And that's what they call them, the best players in the world. Not the best hitters in the world. Right. Not the best putters in the world. They're the best players in the world. And that's what I try to get my students to pay attention to is how they play, how they manage their way around the course. You know, it, it, well said, both of you. You know, the other thing, too, that I, I think a lot of people sort of miss the boat on is – you know that that point that you just said is they don't look at um they don't focus on how they should play and i'll give you an example um you know a, a lot of players will and i'm talking to amateurs now will go out and they'll start tinkering around with their swing in the middle of a round you never see sure. a professional do that i mean you know if there's a, a a slip up with the grip or something like that a professional might tweak very minor um, but they're not going to do a major overhaul. And, and a lot of times, and Allison, I'm sure you can attest this, you've seen players do that where that you're working with, you know, that'll go out there and they'll hit a few bad shots. And right away, they're trying to analyze everything and figure out and try to make changes midstream in a, in a round. And that's just not going to fly. It's not going to help. And it's just going to make matters worse. Um, what do we do in a situation like that? How do we stop them in their tracks? Work with what, as Clint said, work with what, um, they've got that day, and then you know, do the fixes afterwards uh, when they're back working with you, Allison. They have to be able to uh, identify how to stop, how to stop that line of thinking. I think some people end up getting four or five holes deep, and then they're like, "Oh, maybe I should try something different," or you know, maybe I've been trying to overanalyze too much. Um, having a technique that sort of snaps them back into place. Um, I always tell my players, if you hit more than two bad shots in a row, it's time to, t- to take a step back and figure out what's going on. And, and not necessarily in the technical aspect, but figure right. out what's going on as far as your focus, your emotional levels, um, you know, where is your attention being directed. And so for a lot of my junior players, I'll have them, you know, simply wear like a rubber band or something on their wrist. And if they um, find that they hit those two shots in a row that they aren't particularly fond of, they can sort of snap that rubber band and it's a reminder for them to cue into the skills that they know how to use. Okay, let's do our pre-shot routine. Let's take some deep breaths. What emotions am I experiencing right now and how can I expel them from my body? Um, Do I need to come up with a plan B for how I'm approaching this particular shot or this particular hole uh, instead of trying to just uh, continue to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result? I think we all know what that is uh, at some level. (laughs) And so... Um, you know, I think there needs to be that level of awareness. How many shots is it going to take for you to do something different? And, and what is your personal um, quota? For me, it's one. I hit one shot that I'm not particularly fond of, and I already know uh, I need to either, you know, get my attention a little bit better, I need to do some deep breathing to take my system and get a bit more neutral or more stabilized, 
Um, I need to double check my alignment, whatever it might be. But definitely not getting into the habit of, okay, let's fix this technique. Let's take a look at my grip. Let's go more inside out. You know, I want to stay away from that and stay into some more uh, more mental approaches to to work with versus um, trying something different on every single golf swing. Yeah, uh, uh, excellent, uh, excellently uh, articulated as well, uh, Allison. Thank you. And it, and just uh, one final thought, and we, we've got to wrap this up now. And I'm going to let you, the two of you, uh, continue on the evening and and watch some of the highlights and and uh, just enjoy the rest of your evening. But one thing I want to add to what Allison was just saying, you know, as I'm sure you both know from all of my posts and that, um, I also host um, the Women of Golf on Tuesday mornings with Cindy Miller. And we have the pleasure of interviewing uh, a lot of the young ladies coming up on the Symmetra Tour and, and some of the LPJ uh, players as well. And exactly what you just said, Allison, every one of them talks about the same thing. You know, when they're, when they're on the practice tee, you know, they work on, this is what I'm working on, that's what I'm working on. But when they're out there, um, they're playing. They're not focusing on what they need to fix. They're not, you know, if they make a bad shot they don't sit there and analyze it for the next hour or so they move on. They continue to play the game that they're, they're, you know, currently in and uh, you know, they'll deal with whatever demons may have been picked up along the round after the round. And it's just interesting and just how focused the mindset of some of these young ladies coming up uh, in professional golf. And uh, you know, we, we certainly, Cindy and I have a lot of pleasure uh, interviewing these ladies. There's going to be some great champions uh, coming up in women's golf here in the future. You know, Ted, to 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 add, to add on top of that, is it how many times have you been out to the club? You watch a group play, they get done, they go to the bar, have a beer, and they have a sandwich. The tour player goes to the practice range. Right. Right. How exactly. How many tour players practice after they've played? Because yeah. their mindset is they're playing. When they get done, they'll go fix what they didn't like. Right. Exactly. And that after goes to. Fact. Yeah, that goes to exactly what what uh, Allison was talking about Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, yeah, and, it's and a, a characteristic. Yeah, and and this is also goes to further answer the question that you brought out earlier is why handicaps are not going down for a lot of these uh, amateur golfers out there, and that's mm-hmm. because they're they're going to hole nineteen, uh, which you know there's nothing wrong with it's that. Okay. But if you, yeah, it's okay. If you it's truly want to get better, you've got to do what the pros are doing, not necessarily copying their swing, but there, there are patterns. There's a time to play, and then there's a time to work on uh, what right. needs to be worked on. And um, guys, I want to thank both of you, Allison and Clint. Uh, it's been fun. It's been interesting uh, getting your perspectives. And as we we move into uh, the weekend to watch uh, some of the Masters uh, uh, golf and that, and um, it's going to be exciting to see uh, what some of the play has. Very quickly, Allison, I'm going to let you go first, ladies first. Um, let the folks know how they can reach out to you if they're interested in, in uh, knowing a little bit more about you, websites and that sort of thing. You bet. They can head to my website, allisonkurtgolf.com. Um, it has links to all of my social media as well as email. I teach at Wood Ranch Golf Club. I'm the director of instruction at Steeny Valley. Um, and there's also some information on how to set up some sessions if you want to work on your mental game. And then I would say uh, stay tuned for May 19th as I'll be on the Golf Channel. I've aired a couple of tips for um, some segments I will air between um, Michael Breed's show and Martin Hall's show. So uh, feel free to pick up a, a free tip May 19th uh, for, for that on the Golf Channel. 
Perfect. And uh, Clint, uh, same old stuff, man. It, we're at the uh, TGM Golf, the R3 Approach Facebook. They can get us there. They can get me at my email, which is clintgolf001 at yahoo.com. Uh, it'd be more than happy to work with, with any of them. But uh, just what we want to tell people is watch a little golf, but play a lot. Yeah. Got to get out, <laughs> got to get out and play it. Stop watching it and get out and play. Well, well said. Um, Again, thank you very much. I appreciate you you guys giving of your time. And and Allison, while I was listening to Clint, not that I wasn't deep in, in thought and paying attention, but I saw well, your I email so. that you, I hope so. Yeah, I, I saw the email that you sent me about uh, a potential interview. And yes, I would love to. So um, send me whatever information, and uh, I'll be more than happy to uh, to, to reach out and, and have um, have her on as a guest. Fantastic. Sounds good. Um, Allison, good thank luck you, to you. Great. Have yeah, a good thank weekend. you guys. I look forward yeah. to you coming back on the Coach's Corner panel on Golf Talk Live. And thanks very much, as always, for giving of your time. And have a great weekend. Enjoy the tournament. Thanks, guys. You as well. Thank All you. Right. Take care. Bye right. bye. All right. Bye bye. Okay. That was my very special uh, Coach's Corner panel for the Masters edition of Golf Talk Live. And I'm just waiting uh, very patiently for my good friend, Mr. Byron Casper, uh, son of legendary Billy Casper. He's going to be joining me as well uh, here very shortly. And I think actually he may already be here right now. So let me just do a a quick introduction here uh, and uh, we'll begin the uh, second half of Golf Talk Live. Uh, My good friend, Mr. Byron Casper, is joining me here tonight. Uh, He is the director of golf at the Casper Golf Academy. And as I mentioned, he is the son of legendary Billy Casper, who I had the honor and pleasure of interviewing a couple of years ago here uh, when, when I was first starting out the program at Golf Talk Live. His uh, father, unfortunately, is no longer with us, um, passed away, I believe, the year before last. But uh, he was a, a great gentleman, a great um, ambassador of the game, and uh, just a, a joy and, and pleasure to have uh, on the program, uh, as is uh, Byron, and uh, that's why I, I enjoy having him on as well. And he's going to be joining me here, not just tonight, uh, but he's going to be joining me on the Thursday eve of every major uh, for 2016, and we are going to tell you a little bit of the reason why he's going to be doing that here in just a, a moment or two. But let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Byron and, and his background, just for those of you that maybe uh, aren't that familiar with him. Uh, Byron Casper, as I said, has been around golf uh, all his life and certainly recognizes uh, his love of the game started early uh, with uh, going to his father's uh, golf camps in the summer and traveling to different uh, events to watch his uh, famous father, Billy Casper, compete. Uh, he began his own career in golf world as a teenager and was a caddy at the SPGA, which is now the Champions Tour and uh, PGA Tours, and worked with uh, for both uh, his father and other uh, tour professionals during the time. Uh, he attended the Golf Academy of America in San Diego and Southwestern College and then went to work for Carbite Golf as the uh, senior PGA Tour representative for about a year. Uh, and then he moved uh, on to a position as player liaison for the International Golf Tour and the International PGA. Uh, He then later moved to Scotland uh, in the 90s and was the head club fitter and teaching professional for Heritage Golf Golf, of St. Andrews and then the St. Andrews Golf Company, both manufacturers of golf equipment. Uh, Back in 2007, he moved back to the U.S. and uh, was the first golf professional with Golf Tech in Utah. And during this time, he became a certified golf coach and uh, master club fitter for all major golf brands. So without further hesitation, let me bring on my good friend, Mr. Byron Casper. Good, e- Ted, good evening. After after that introduction, uh, geez, uh, you know, <laughs> what can I say? 
Yeah, we're going to have to make the second half of the show a little quick because I think I spent most mo- – oops, I think I just cut you off here. Well, I think I can nope, hear you. Still, still hear you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there we are. Sorry, I was uh, doing something here, and I uh, hit the wrong button, but sorry about that. Um, no, it's a pleasure yeah, to be with you tonight. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you. And as I, I sort of leaked out a little bit earlier, but we're going to do the, sort of the official unveiling, if you will, here in just a moment. Uh, we're going to continue on. Uh, of course, this is Masters Week, uh, and uh, this is a, a special edition of Golf Talk Live. This is a Masters edition, and uh, you and I are going to talk uh, a little bit about the Masters uh, and just uh, not only from the, the current player's perspective, but also a little bit from your father's uh, perspective. Of course, he was a, a Masters champion in his days. And uh, But we're going to talk about a, a special contest that you and I have sort of put together here, and you very generously right. helped me uh, uh, quite a bit. It's the uh, Golf Talk Live Major Champion Couples Contest, and and uh, I'm going to tell them very quickly what that is, and we're unrolling that officially tonight. And let me tell you, first off, uh, um, what's involved, uh, what you have a chance to win uh, if you're the lucky recipient, and, uh, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the rules. Um, first off, it's going to be a, a weekend uh, retreat, if you will, in San Diego in Southern California. And uh, as I mentioned, Byron has very graciously uh, helped me put some of this together. Uh, you're going to get uh, two nights, uh, one night uh, at bed and breakfast at the Hacienda Hotel in Old Town, San Diego. And that's also going to include uh, for two at uh, Salt Creek Golf Club, uh, a round of golf. And then the second night uh, is also at a bed and breakfast at the Palm Mountain Hotel and Spa. And that also is going to include a golf for two at the Encina uh, Golf Club. And then during that uh, stay, you're also going to have an opportunity to meet with uh, Byron Casper himself uh, for some lunch at the Old Town Tequila Factory, uh, which is hosted, as I said, by Byron. And uh, just to remind you that Byron is an international PJ member and instructor and son, of course, of uh, legendary uh, professional golfer Billy Casper. And also included in that, which I had an opportunity to read, uh, he's also going to include in that is a, uh, as one of the prizes is a copy of uh, Billy Casper's last book, The Big Three and Me, and it's a great read, so you want to make sure that uh, uh, you sift through that. Uh, a lot of great information, a lot of great stories in there. And uh, all put together, the, the value of the prize uh, exceeds $1,000. So it's a great package and uh, some great, great uh, yeah, great prize and some great uh, sponsors, if you will, uh, of this particular contest. So uh, thank you to the Hacienda Hotel and uh, the Salt Creek uh, Golf Club and as well as the Palm uh, Mountain Spa. Thank you very much for for very generously uh, uh, donating the uh, the prize. Uh, and, and whoever wins this is going to have a great time. Um, let me just uh, also mention just some of the the rules here. I've sort of jotted them down. I'm going to be officially uh, posting uh, everything, including uh, the prize itself and uh, just some of the uh, contestant rules. Not, um, but basically, um, you, you must be 21 or older to participate in the contest. And what we're going to ask of you to do is there are four majors, of course, uh, beginning this weekend with the Masters. Uh, and I've set up a, a special email. It's uh, golftalklivecontest at gmail.com. And what we're going to ask for you to do is to email who you think the winner for each of the events uh, for the Masters, the U.S. Open, the Open, or, or formerly known as the British Open, and the PGA Championship. Uh, now, you don't have to do them all in one email. You can send uh, an email this week, uh, weekend, and then one for the U.S. and the Open and, of course, the PGA. 
and who you think the winner is going to be. And the deadline, of course, is going to be um, to submit those emails is 12 midnight on Friday of each of the events. And the reason why we're doing that, obviously you can't uh, have the tournament go through and you're going to know who the winner is at that point. So we want you to guess at this. I got to make it a little bit difficult and, but you'll get four chances. You'll get, you'll get a chance. uh, Each person can only do one submission per tournament. uh, So for a total of four, so you have four chances. Now you don't have to get all four of them correct. That's why we're letting you do it this way. Um, You just have to get one correct. And, And when doing so, uh, you're going to go into the hat, as you will, and then the week following, the Thursday following the uh, PGA Championship, which will be the last major of 2016, uh, Byron's going to come on, and we're going to announce the winner live on Golf Talk Live uh, of this fabulous prize. So um, that's starting tonight. So you'll have until, as an example, you'll have until midnight tomorrow uh, for your submissions, and they go to Golf Talk Live Contest at gmail.com is where you send them to, and we need, of course, uh, your full contact information, your full name, and so forth. And this is uh, a prize uh, contest for two. Uh, so it's a couples contest. That's what we want. And you'll have, as I said, till midnight Friday uh, this week and then uh, subsequently for uh, the U.S. Open and, and PGA and the uh, Open, uh, the British Open as well. So you'll have uh, four chances to do that. And as I said, we will um, throw them in the hat and uh, select a winner uh, the following Thursday, the uh, cha- uh, PGA Championship. And this is going to be open to uh, Canadian and U.S. residents only, uh, obviously for proximity because it is taking place in Southern California. Um, airfare is not included, so that's uh, part of the reason why we're limiting to that. But uh, uh, a great prize yeah, nonetheless. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I just want to point that out, the airfare is it, uh, but... Anywhere from Canada and the U.S., you can get to uh, San Diego very easily at very uh, very limited expense. And as I said, you're getting a great package here uh, in this contest. Mm-hmm. So uh, I will keep letting everybody know, uh, Byron, throughout. We'll, I'll post it up in social media, and I know that you'll uh, relay that information as well. And once the, the um, winner has been selected, uh, we will provide in email um, how you go about claiming your prize. Uh, and that will, of course, be contacting Byron himself, uh, his mm-hmm. assistant. And uh, they will give you all of the ins and outs. And, and you'll have actually, the other thing I want to quickly note before I forget, is from the date that we draw the winner, which will be the Thursday following the PGA Championship, you will have one year to claim your prize. So you have plenty of time. Uh, you're not limited to, uh, to taking it right away. Uh, you'll have a year to think about uh, when you want to visit uh, San Diego area, Southern California, and play some great golf. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but... Um, uh, again, Byron, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live, and and let's talk a little bit about the Masters. Um, a couple points I want to make. Exciting make. first day already, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, we talked about that on the Coach's Corner panel the first hour, and uh, uh, the the gang that was on with me, Allison Kurt, who's a Master Professional, she's out in uh, California as well, and then uh, Clint Wright, who's up in I believe North Carolina. Uh, he's been watching. In fact, he was watching a little bit uh, while we were on the air. Uh, just sort of updating it. One, a couple of things I want to mention, um, Byron. First off, yeah, of uh, um, Jordan Spieth um, closes out with a mm-hmm. six under his first round. Of course, he was last year's uh, Masters champion. Uh, good start to the day. You know what? I think it was a great start to the day. Um, you know, I, I've heard rumors that uh, because of of the wind conditions out there um, and because of the possible conditions coming up for the uh, weekend that they haven't mode of the greens is and the greens aren't rolling as fast as they were uh in the past um and right. so maybe that has a little bit to do with some of the low 
um, low rounds. But, you know, I, I would have to say that regardless, um, you know, it's a very difficult golf course. And um, anytime you can go out and shoot anything in the 60s at yep. Augusta, it's, uh, it's a great round. Oh, fantastic. Now, on the flip side of that, um, and we talked about that. I won't get into too much more about it because um, we, we covered it in the first hour. But Ernie Els, of course. Um, oh, my gosh. Very, yeah, I mean, yeah seasoned old. veteran. <laughs> yeah, it ended up – now, I, I, I heard on the radio when I was driving up here, I heard on the radio that they actually had him uh, marked as a 10 on the first hole, but it's been adjusted now. Uh, somebody counted incorrectly, and it was a 9 so I guess that's one stroke better, but nine on, on hole number one. And as I understand from the uh, commentary that he uh, was set up for a par putt um, at just under two feet and, and then sort of things fell apart from there. Um, I, I'm sure you can attest to, and I'm sure your dad, if, if he was with us, could attest it. Uh, Augusta greens are, are tough to, to handle. You know, they really are. And, um, but it's also not just the greens that are tough to handle. It's everything that happens uh, when, yep when you're at Augusta, um, you know, Augusta has a, has a natural way of bringing back memories, um, good and bad. And, yep. um, you know, those, again, the greens weren't rolling terribly quick, but in saying that, um, you know, his nine really should have been no worse than a, a seven and, yep. and very probably a bogey. Um, and, you know, his last little one-handed shots out of frustration. We've all been there. We've all done that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I did cost him an extra two strokes. And he may yeah. not be too happy about that come come Friday. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so, you know, I always am reminded of what Dad used to say, and that is, you know, whether you know what you're preparing for or not, always be prepared. And uh, that's one of those situations that I think um, – being able to not be as frustrated as he, he was is something that uh, that he, he probably wishes he had back a little bit. Yeah, and that brings me to, to really sort of the first question that, that I want to talk about um, tonight. You know, what a player's mindset coming into Augusta is, and then I, I want you to sort of maybe take this from your father's perspective. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what did, what did your dad, what did Billy do? Uh, when he was preparing for a major, what what was sort of his mindset coming into it, and how did he prepare himself um, when he was playing the majors? Well, you know, the interesting thing is, is I think everybody has their own, um, you know, their own little combination uh, that of things that that work. Um, for Dad, you know, Dad was never a big uh, range practicer. You know, he wouldn't spend hours on the range practicing. Right. What he would do is he would go out and he'd hit five, six balls per hole. Um, and really understand not just hitting good shots, but hitting shots where he wanted to hit them and kind of planning ahead. So, you know, when you look at the majors, they, they do that to the extreme. Um, you know, you may have, may have already mentioned this, but I'm sure about, I think it was Rory that decided to not play in the right. part three contest. And, um, you know, on the, the surface of that, it seems a little bit, well, you know, that's a little bit spoiled, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, um, you have to understand that, you know, my dad used to say that, you know, this is their office. When you're a golf professional, that is your office. And whatever it takes for you to be top and performing in your office is, is what you should be doing. So for somebody like a dad, it was very much a playing the course, um, understanding the conditions that were going to be uh, happening that week, making sure that, 
that his ball striking was fine and that his short game was fine, but more important than even any of that was really understanding what the course conditions were going to be like. Right. And, and I think, too, and, and, you know, in that particular generation, I think it was less about technique than it was about playing um, and, and handling the conditions that they were going to be faced with. I think in your your dad's generation, you know, with Nicholas and Palmer and, and all, many other greats that play alongside your father, I think that's really was the focus. Um, you know, Nicholas, you never heard him talk about the technique and, you know, his whether his arm was in the right place or not. It was about getting himself in the position to give himself the best opportunities um, throughout his rounds. And I think your father obviously um, was like that as well, correct? Well, I, think all, I think all of them, yeah, all of them were like that. In fact, it's interesting because when I think of my father or any of the others, Nicholas, Palmer, Player, uh, right. even good friends like Don January and Miller Barber or Gene Littler or Gabe Brewer, I don't ever remember any of them questioning whether or not they could hit a golf ball. Right. Not once. I do remember them having bad rounds and dissecting what made that bad round and then fixing that particular problem. So I, I don't right. think they overthought it. I don't think, think that they were able to overthink it. I think that's one of the, one of the reasons they became such great players um, because they weren't overthinking too much. They just were making sure that they had what it take or what it took in order to win that week. So again, for somebody like a, um, you know, uh, Jim Faree or uh, Tom Kite, that's going to be standing on the driving range, getting your swing down and getting your target, um, you know, mechanism in your brain working perfectly. For somebody like a dad, uh, Billy Casper, that, you know, that's going to be going out on the course and, again, hitting four or five shots, but from four different spots on the fairway so that he understands right. exactly what, what, where, what and where that ball needs to go. So, again, it's just really really preparing back then as, as opposed to now. Now they have swing coaches. They have yeah. nutritionalists. They have all of these people that are preparing their mind and their body. Um, and so it really is up to them to prepare themselves for that particular course. Right. What do you think, um, Byron, was your dad's strongest part of his game? I mean, as, as some of the players um, this week are, are dealing with some of the, well, as you said, that they're, the greens aren't quite as fast, but traditionally – Augusta's greens were, were quite fast, and, and as uh, one of my earlier guests talked about, you know, in preparation, you know, practicing on uh, putting on concrete um, yeah. would be about the closest thing. Uh, what was his? What was your dad's strongest part of his game, and um, what was maybe his uh, one of his weaker areas that you can recall? Well, I'm going to start that. I'm going to I'm going to go in reverse because I want to okay. want to share with you a little story that I heard my dad say to one of his friends outside of his home in Utah years ago, and he threw a ball down and he putted it across the ice in the middle of winter and laughed wow. and said, the greens at Augusta are faster than this. <laughs> and, um, and so that's a good example of, of how, quick, uh, how quick the greens are. But, you know, it, I would say that um, the best part of his game, hands down, was, was his putting and then his chipping. Um, he had the ability to about 99% of the time, get up and down in two. Um, so much so that he never even considered it a real problem. Um, if he was ever off the green, to a lot of people, that's going to be a, a struggle for a par or um, or take a bogey. But Dad always had this amazing capacity to believe from the get-go that his worst number was going to be that par. And... Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, you know, I would say, again, it was putting, it was short game. Um, you know, a good friend of mine, John Miller, Johnny Miller's son, um, so John Miller Jr. said to me the other day, he says, you know, he says, our, our dads are good to the level that, and both of us are professionals as well, but our fathers right. are good to a level that is even hard for us to understand because um, they have the ability to know within a yard um, where that ball was going to go. Mm. And um, and that is that, that's just an amazing, amazing quality. So all of them are good ball strikers, and Dad was a good ball striker as well. He just right. was probably better than average when it comes to – in fact, he was definitely better than average when it comes to how good his short game was. Yeah, and that brings up to another point too, um, Byron, that uh, one of the other guests, uh, Clint uh, Wright, who's a, a professional out in um, North Carolina, talked about, and he said, you know, pitching and, and you know, chipping and that, but pitching particularly – um, you know, this has helped as an example today with, with Jordan and his uh, six under round, you know, he's not hitting, he might've hit uh, eight, you know, eight to 10 uh, greens, but he was able to position his recovery, his pitch shots or chip, you know, into uh, the right spot on the green to be able to make those putts in order to either save Perfect. par yeah. or, or get those birdies. And I think this is where a lot of amateurs miss the boat. So if if you were going to um, and and you know th- feel free to to sort of recall any thoughts that your dad shared with you as well if you were going to advise some of the amateurs today um, to really where they should be focusing their efforts what would that be well you know that's a that's a huge question um, you know the truth <laughs> of it is uh, the truth of it is it really depends on on what sort of mental um, process you go through and what, and, and, and which way you think. So if you're more of a feel player, you're going to think more feel and emotional. And if you're more of a statistic type player, mechanical, you're going to think that, um, you know, we all know that there's plenty of cases where guys hit 15, 16 greens in a round and still end up shooting par or worse. And, um, and then you hear of situations, you know, like today's a great example with, uh, with Jordan and um, yep. getting up and down um, so much, um, which really saved his, his bacon out there. And and so it really is all components in your game coming together at the same time in order to, to win these championships. Um, and so for, for your amateur golfer, um, I would say there, there, there are so many aspects um, of what is important and what isn't important. But for me, and dad is the one that, that ingrained this in me. So this is directly from Billy Casper. Um, it really starts with your hands because your hands are the only contact that your body has with that golf ball. Right. The only contact. And so it starts with your hands. It works your way up from the feet, making a good grounded body position and being able to make a good upper body turn. And from there, it really is about being square at impact so that that ball is going where you're aimed. And really, that is what it comes down to. And so if you take a half swing, but you hit the ball 150 yards straight as an arrow, or you take a three-quarter swing because that's your control area, then those are, those are what you should be working on. Because let's not forget that the game of golf is about scoring. It's not about how pretty you look dressed up in your good clothes. <laughs> it's right. not about how, 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 pretty, how pretty your golf swing is. It really isn't. You can have the prettiest swing in the world, and guess what? It's not going to win you tournaments. 
What's going to win you tournaments is is understanding your own swing and how that works. You know, and you raise a, a, a great point, um, Byron, because you know I was I was sitting here thinking as as you were you were talking that um, in today's golf there tends to be that that sort of manufacturing a swing as opposed to uh, tapping into someone's natural ability. And if you look at uh, comparison to players in your dad's uh, era and the players today, um, there's a big difference. I mean, most of the players that played along the time, your, your dad and some of the other greats of golf had uniquely different looking swings. Um, today, many of the swings look very similar. Um, in fact, yeah, some of them yeah, are they, identical. They and it, I, I just wonder sometimes if that's why you're not seeing, I mean, Tigers obviously was an exception, but why you're not really seeing anybody run away uh, as you did. You know, I always hear a lot of the analysts always say, well, it's just because there's so many great players today. Um, yeah, but they're all swinging basically the same way. Whereas, you know, earlier on, you know, you had guys like Jack and that they were playing golf. They weren't worried about, you know, the pitcher. I love, perfect I love or how they just said that. I do you understand you what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I, do, I, I do. I understand completely what you're saying. So here's how I look at the old-fashioned swings compared to the new swings. And that is, if you look at the old older swings like Dad's or Gabe Brewer's or Miller Barber's or even Don January's or newer new, you know, older gentlemen that are older than me but still um, not right. quite as old as Dad, like couples and people like that, um, you've got some interesting swing dynamics. So sure. with our older with our older golf pros, Billy Casper and mm-hmm. and all of those in that ilk, or even with the the mid mid aged golf pros like the Freddie Couples, they had very long, wristy backswings. Yeah. Nowadays, the, the swings that we see on tour are usually right about the ten eleven o'clock position or a good three quarter right. swing. And the reason they're doing that is because of what you just said. The swing mechanics yeah. are they're taught to, to be perfect. Yeah. And and they can but but guess what? The best players in the world can only control that with a three quarter swing. And so the guys fifty years ago, they didn't have all the technology and yet they had very fluid, full swings and still played sure. golf the same way. So I would say that they had more talent because they used feel a lot more than the players nowadays do. Well, and, and you're right. And, and, you know, one of the interesting things, and, and just to, to add to that a little bit further, your your father, uh, as I recall, won, what, 51 tournaments? Yeah, he won 51 PGA tournaments. Uh, he won 11 uh, senior PGA tournaments, and he won an additional 18 international tournaments um, with over 70 victories um, and three majors on the regular tour and two majors on the senior tour. So we got a five-time major winner uh, over crossing over two tours and 70-plus uh, tournaments worldwide. So, you know, he must have been doing something right. It may not be yeah, the prettiest. Yeah, he's worth listening to, right? <laughs> right, exactly. It may not be, by today's standards, the prettiest swing. You know, and it brings an interesting point. I mean, I'm six foot four. I'm probably 200-plus um, pounds um, now, and but I'm still, you know, fairly lean by, by some people's standards. And, you know, I always had a very long backswing. And I can remember, I mean, I didn't work with a lot of, um, you know, instruction over the years. My father was the one that taught me. And, you know, mm-hmm. he always said to me, you know, let your, your sort of natural body movement and, and flow of your body sort of dictate how you swing the golf club. Don't worry about getting into, you know, he didn't try to force my arm into certain positions. 
And it was interesting on the few occasions when I did, you know, sort of seek out some additional counsel, if you will, everybody tried to shorten up my backswing. And what ultimately ended up happening, um, Byron, was my tempo would, would go off because it's not yep. how I would naturally swing. And it, it exactly. created more it created more problems. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I need to swing like um, uh, what's his name? God, I can't even think of him now. Um, John Daly, uh, as an example, or even a Freddie Couples. Mm-hmm. But my my body type and style was a little bit longer backswing than maybe what you might see on tour today but that's what but worked see, for but, me but you just nailed it exactly right. because it's your body it's your body style you know there was there was a test there was a great article in golf digest about 4 or 5 years ago and it talked about the how there really is three planes in the golf swing and how those planes are they're not dependent on anything except really your body size how right. tall and how big you are, because it makes perfect sense. And, you know, I used to work with Bob Toskey years when I was right. first starting out as a professional golfer years ago, I guess going back about 25 years now. And I'll never forget what he said to me, um, one of the first lessons I had with him. And he said, why are you trying to swing like your dad? You're, you don't have the same shape as your dad. Right. And it was true. I'm three inches taller than my father and probably 30, 40 pounds uh, lighter. And so I was more like you, Ted, where I had the ability to be longer, a little bit more upright, and really fluid with my golf swing, whereas Dad used his body correctly and was a little flatter and rotated his body around the ball. And so, you know, it really depends on your body shape and your body style. And other than that, I think golf can be taught very much uniform across the board once you start with where that plane has to be, depending on what size of a player you are. Yeah. Now, and well said, you know, and that's exactly right. And, and I've always, you know, when I work with a lot of my corporate clients, Nat, that's one of the things that I've always tried to instill on them is I don't try to, you know, they'll say, well, I like so-and-so on TV. And I'll say, you know, there may be some things that you can take away um, from that individual's playing style, but you don't mm-hmm. want to mimic or copy exactly verbatim what that particular golf swing is because it may not be like, for instance, you know, again, I'm six foot four for me to try and swing like an Ian Woosnam, who's considerably shorter than I am and a little bit more stout um, just wouldn't make sense. Now, you know, if I was to swing a little bit more of the lines of say a Nick Faldo, who who is very mechanical, but is more my height and body style, um, you know, that would make more sense. And I think that sometimes, you know, we, we've tried to put people into a box and, and one size fits all, and that's just not the case. Uh, you well, know, you everybody's know different. The best, way to, to, the best way I learned to get around that is when I, when I hear one of my students or, or one of my staff members that, are, that I'm, I'm helping with their game say that, you know, they say that they're, they're built like a Don January. So they're built right. tall and thin, 6'5 and tall and thin. Um, and their favorite player on the tour happens to be, uh, let's say, John Daly. Yeah. Well, they're they're going to to be able to draw some similarities there. Of course they are. Mm-hmm. But you're still going to have to put your own feel into it, and you're still going to have to find out how much rotation they have. And once you have the answers to those questions, then everything else kind of really falls into place. So I think golf really starts before feel and even before mechanics. Golf starts with an understanding of how much flexibility you have as an individual. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, let me ask you, um, Byron. Again, we'll go back to uh, to our discussion about Augusta. Um, you know, and I, I talked about earlier in Coach's Corner with with the guests um, some of the questions here, but uh, I wanted to get your perspective. And, and again, I want you to sort of draw from not only your own experience, but also from your uh, discussions that you've had and, and things that you've seen your father do. Um, but was it important for him or, or do you feel it's important to sort of get out of the gate quickly at the beginning of a, a major championship like that? Uh, or, you know, would it be more prudent to pace yourself uh, at a course like Augusta or, or does the, the conditions sort of dictate uh, what you're going to do? In other words, if you're, um, you know, if you're off to a, sort of a rocket start, maybe you've strung up a couple of birdies, do you build on that momentum and, and, and go for it? Or do you play kind of conservative in the beginning to, to make sure that you, you, uh, you know, you don't end up in a case like Ernie Els that finished with 80 uh, on his first round? What, uh, what did, in your thoughts, what, uh, what should a player do? And, uh, what was your sort of dad's game plan when he came into the majors? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll talk from two perspectives. One, a caddy for, for my father, uh, Billy Casper on the tour and, and at the masters, which I did caddy for him twice there, but also my own personal experience playing in Europe. Um, the words go for it, I find kind of interesting. I thought it was an interesting choice of words um, that you mm-hmm. used a second ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> because the, <clears throat> I think we're all going for it to a certain extent from Thursday onwards. Right. Um, and I think that once you start that momentum, you're going to take advantage of it as long as it, as it lasts. Um, right. So if, if you're going birdie, birdie, you know, par birdie, um, yeah, you're going to get as many birdies as you can that day. You're not you're not looking to hold anything back, but at the same time, Ted, you're definitely not looking to go for it or to, to take unreasonable chances. Um, the the day for unreasonable chances are is Sunday when you're five shots back and you don't have anything to lose, right? Um, except you know, except for you know some low scores that you can sneak up the, the leaderboard. But on a Thursday, you're coming out of the gate. You want to come out strong. You definitely want your Thursday and Friday to be strong rounds. They don't necessarily need to be the lowest rounds, but they have to be strong rounds that keep you in the in the hunt. So that mm-hmm. come Saturday, your mental, you know, aspect of, of of your game is to where you still believe you have a chance to go and post a couple good scores over the next two days and finish in the top ten or win. Right. And and so I would say Thursday and Friday are strong days where you want to be, you know, strong in the field. Um, You may not be taking undue chances, but you're still going to be really trying to go low. Saturday and Sunday are your days where you're going to take a few more chances. You're really going to try to go low. Um, And Sunday you're going to take more chances than ever if you're further back in the field because you have nothing to lose. What about the what about the leader? Do you think um, you know come Sunday if if Jordan's uh, you know still in the lead? depending on, on where he is, on how much of a lead, does he begin to play more? If, if he's got a, a, a substantial lead, like, a, say, a 10-under, and uh, maybe he's six, seven strokes ahead of the field, does he um, play more conservative at that point to protect his lead? Or if, it, if, if he's, again, stringing those birdies together, does he just sort of keep going for it because he does have a, such a commanding lead? Or, or what would the uh, strategy be at that point, you think? Well, you have to get inside their mind when they're that low. Um, and, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, right. Jordan Spieth. Um, if they're playing that well and they've got a five or 
six or seven or eight shot lead going into the back nine on the last day of any tournament, including Augusta, um, they're going to certainly be aware of their game, but they're going to be so focused and so in the zone that they're going to be hitting shots as powerful and as close as possible without really even trying hard. As you know, once you get into that area yep. um, where, where you're, you're playing well, golf doesn't just become fun. It becomes almost the easiest, easiest thing on the planet to do. It, it, everything flows. And so if you're, if you're already in that area, which I would argue you would have to be in order to have that much of a lead, um, yep. then you're going to just be playing your normal game. You're not going to be holding anything back but you're not going to be making stupid chances you know, or taking stupid chances either. What, um, yeah, you're exactly right. Well said. What did your dad do, um, Byron, in a, in a situation? And this was a question I posed to the panel uh, earlier. Um, and I'm sure there were courses or, or even holes that, that your dad came upon that maybe just didn't fit his eye or didn't fit his ball flight particularly. Um, how did your dad handle courses or holes like that um, when it didn't particularly suit uh, uh, his, his uh, natural ball flight? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, it really depended on, on how he was playing. I suppose that's how it is with all of us. Um, but it really depended on how he was playing. You know, I remember um, being, being up at uh, uh, Lake Tahoe uh, at a senior, a senior event, a Champions Tour event, I remember them there being a par three um, that ran along the side of Lake Tahoe, and mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, Dad would take his ball and he'd aim over out towards the dock over the water and then bring the ball back in. Right. And um, and so you know he was playing really great right then, and so he wasn't worried about control or anything like that, um, and yet in the very same, you know, type of situation, but 30, 40 years previous, um, when he was playing at the Olympic club, um, in San Francisco, he laid up four days in a row in the middle of the U S open on a par three, um, Hmm. chipped up and sank the putt, made a par four days in a row and also won it that year. Wow. And so he, he, he understood that if he hit the, the ball, within a, a deviation of of a yard or more that it would bounce into the trap behind the green and that that was a really hard up and down for him. So he played the percentages. The percentage was he could knock it in front of the green, chip up, make the putt, and he got a par out of there. And he got it four days in a row. Well, fantastic. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and that, that, again, goes to why, you know, there's such a big difference between the amateurs and the professionals you know everybody looks at it strictly the amateurs look at it and say well you know if I was a good a ball striker as you know uh so and so you know I I could you know shoot better scores but really it, it has nothing to do with with uh ball striking I mean if you're a decent ball striker but you're a great player and you're a great thinker around the golf course you can post some incredible scores I mean you may not win the master's tournament but you can post uh, some incredible scores on your own golf course or your, in your own championship. But the problem I think with a lot of players, and I'm sure you've seen this yourself, Byron, is they're focusing so much on hitting that perfect shot, hitting the ball just perfectly every time that they don't really think about where they want the ball to go, what they want to do, what's going to happen if it doesn't go, where they, how to recover from that. 
And, you know, I look at it this way, and I, I've said this here recently. I look at golf, playing a golf hole as having four factors um, to be successful. The first one is, um, first and foremost, is position. Then there's the approach. Then there's the recovery, if need be. And then there's your scoring. And I think if you yeah. look at golf, a golf hole from those – now, people might use different vernacular and different wording, but that's essentially there are four factors to playing um, your best golf, and that is um, position – approach recovery and scoring and i think what made people like your dad was that they were masterful in all four of those areas yeah they they have the ability to turn it on um yeah and um and and also you know we can't forget that they have the ability not just not just to turn it on but they also have the ability to um to i, I suppose hyper focus for lack of a better word um, yeah. Because that's really what it takes. It's it's being able to focus when you're walking up um, the 18th at, at Augusta or at Wingfoot or at any major or any tournament for that matter. Um, but as you're walking up and you have thousands of people watching you and you stick that ball within three feet and make the putt, that takes a whole level of courage that oh. um, you know I don't think we I don't think people talk about enough. Right. Right. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. You know, um, I heard a player and I I don't recall off the top of my head who it was, but years ago said that they would rather be putting a 20 or 25 foot putt than standing over a three foot putt at a major to win the tournament simply because if they missed the 25 footer, but still got it reasonably close, that'd be considered a good, a good, a good stroke. Mm-hmm. But if they were standing over a three-foot putt and didn't make it and ended up either tying or losing, that would affect them greater. Do you agree with that? I, you know, I not only agree with it um, 100%, I also think that it's something that, as a golf professional, when I've worked with students in the past, I always really like to point out that all of these these stories, it's a false sense of hero worship that your amateur yeah. golfer has for a golf professional when they think that they're making 80% of the, 80% of their putts they're making that are over 20 feet. And, and that's just right. not the case, as you know, Ted. Um, right. You know, your, your average player, your average top player in the world is only going to make about 80% of putts from 10 feet in. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it in that perspective, it really opens up your eyes as to, um, like you said a moment ago, the four components that need to be on during a round of golf. You know, that's every bit as important because that's what's putting the ball in the hole. And so Dad always said, you know, you can hit the ball great, but unless you know how to get it up and close to the hole and then get it putted in the hole, yeah, <laughs> um, you're not going to be a good golfer because you have to put it in the hole, you know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, and just to add to that, you know, the interesting thing is I see so many amateurs, uh, Byron, that, you know, uh, stand on the on the practice tee with their drivers and just, you know, so focused on, on hitting those perfect drives out there because I think that that is what's going to help make them a better golfer. And they spend so little time on the rest of their game. Um, you know, they might go and hit a few putts or something before the round, but um, they spend very little time on chipping and pitching particularly uh, and really honing in on their short game because they don't find it as as exciting, if you will, or, or mm-hmm. interesting. And you know, this is another reason why you know, handicaps don't come down 
um, because they're they're really focusing on the wrong area of their game. You know, if you yeah. if you can hit yeah. it, you know, 150 plus yards straight down the fairway, you know, with with um, you know a five iron or a utility club, um, you can play most any golf course in the world and shoot par. But if you're you know trying to force a 250 yard drive that's going 40 yards left or right and hoping of, of, you know, recovering out of the rough all the time, you know, your, your chances are going to go down. So unless you've got a strong well, recovery, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, weather comes into that too. And they're going to have that out at Augusta this week. They're going to have, you know, to deal with a little bit of weather. They're also going to have to deal um, with the greens getting a little faster because the, the greens will speed up um, and they'll cut them shorter come the weekend. Um, and then on top of all of all of that, um, with the wind, the the conditions, if it gets a little bit you know moist out there, um, and then the really fast greens, you know, I think we're going to see maybe half a dozen players low, but I don't think we're going to see a lot of players low. This no, week. no, I think they said the projected cut was going to be uh, uh, plus two, but um, we'll see we'll see how that goes. Um, Byron, I, 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 we, oh gosh, it's hard to believe that the time's flying by here so quickly. Um, we, we've got a little, enough time here, but I, I want to take a few moments to give you an opportunity to talk about, because I know it's coming up here real soon, uh, in just a little over a month's time, but your dad's annual tournament, uh, charity tournament's coming up on, I think you said this year is May 16th. Um, it's normally a little bit earlier in May, but, uh, for some reason it got pushed back a little bit. So it's May 16th of, of 2016. Uh, uh, Billy Casper's tournament, and that's being held at the San Diego Country Club, uh, benefiting, Correct. of course, this char- charity, Billy's Kids. So tell us a little bit about the tournament. Um, what, what are you looking forward to this year? And then I just want you to briefly talk a little bit about some of the things that the charity does to help these kids. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, Billy's Kids or the Billy Casper Youth Foundation was started by my parents uh, over 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, to help raise money for a high school uh, group of kids uh, here in San Diego, South San Diego. And from there, it uh, it's grown into a tournament that has, uh, it's, I believe we're in our 20th or 21st year. Um, we've raised close to $4 million for children, uh, children's charities around the world. Um, we support groups like the Boys and Girls Club um, of America, we support groups like Junior Achievement, which helps keep kids in school and gives them focused uh, careers to focus on that they are interested in. Um, we work with hospitals, uh, children's hospitals. Um, we we really do support every child um, that we can through uh, charity organization, and so that's why we have it, why it's called the, the Youth Foundation, because Youth Foundation is able to raise funds for lots of different youth foundations or youth charities. And right. um, and so this year the tournament's going to be on May 16th. The website is billyskids.com. Um, and please, please go and take a look at, at what, what we've done, what we're hoping to do um, as we continue to, to build this. Um, uh, again, this uh, dad passed away last year, so he's not going to be right. at the event. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's going to be a memorial event. Um, and will continue to, to be a memorial event for him um, because kids and their needs were hugely important to my dad. Right. And they, they are very much so for my mom, who is still running uh, the yep. charity and the Youth Foundation. Yeah, I remember uh, interviewing your dad a few years ago. And, uh, you know, of course, we talked about his book, The, the Big Three and Me. 
um, and, uh, and some other things. But uh, we, we, you know, came around as we are now talking about the tournament. And uh, you could really hear in his voice just the passion he had for this charity and how much it was important to him um, that he, you know, it wasn't just about, you know, another golfer giving back. I mean, many golfers give back, but he, um, he went sort of above and beyond that. It was important for him, as you just pointed out, to, um, to ensure that, that kids have an, a, you know, a good opportunity out there, a good start to life um, by being involved in different activities and, and help where they need it and, you know, be encouraged in, in many ways. Um, because I think when you have a good start like that, then, you know, the years that follow are only going to be better. And, and I, I just sensed uh, talking with him, um, you know, over the course of the, those two hours, um, why it was so important to him. And, you know, he shared a number of stories, um, you know, with us at the time. But, um, you know, you could really hear the passion in his voice and how important the, the Billy's Kids uh, Foundation was. And I think I might yeah. have lost our. Oh, you, oh, oh no. sorry. I, I think I think I just uh, got into a bad signal. But I, what I was saying is, I think that um, that it was important to him because of his own upbringing, um, because right. of the challenges and difficulties that him, as well as my mother, had had growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why they had a lot of children, um, and why yeah. they're they're very serious, and I always have been with regards to helping youth. Uh, programs, youth charities. Um, it, it, anytime you can help a kid, um, it really is, is true what they say. The children um, of today are the adults of tomorrow. And yep. considering that you and I are going to be old men when the children of today yeah. are the adults of tomorrow, I think we should all be a little nicer to them. But, um, but right. first and foremost, <laughs> we, uh, um, well, you know, it's, it's important to give back, uh, as you said, but, but it, it's equally as important to have passion and to have a heart that is so big um, that wants to give back 24 hours a day. And that really is what my, my father uh, was at yeah. the end of his life more so than ever was he, he just wanted to give back because he felt so blessed with the life that he, sure. he had had. And, um, you know, not bad for a kid that didn't have shoes until he was six years old to become the number seventh golfer in, in the history of the game of golf. Yeah, um, and that—that's a true, uh, a true warming story of what can really happen if you have a little belief in yourself and you have some good people around you that believe in you as well. So think about how many kids out there can use just that, just use somebody to believe in them a little bit right now. And so that's what, yeah. what we're trying to do with the Youth Foundation. Yeah, and it's really it boils down to uh, mentorship as well. I mean, I think that you know when you can. Um, as he did give back to the youth like that and give them a chance to, um, you know, not just fulfill, but just to dream. I mean, kids today, uh, you know, I, I can't begin. And, and there's, listen, there's many adults too that just have sort of lost that ability to dream. They're, many of them are living in a fantasy world that's created through social media and that they don't really know how and they're afraid to dream because of so much disappointment in the world and I think that yep. you know the the more that we can focus on these kids and give them an opportunity to dream first, and then to sort of be proactive and, and chase after those dreams. And you know you're not gonna everything's not always gonna come to fruition maybe the way you want, but if you at least start with a dream, and if people are there alongside you to sort of encourage you and help you, um, you know you can literally move mountains. And and you know your father has has uh, as living proof of that that you know started from very very humble. Uh, beginnings, as you've stated, 
um, but was able to do uh, and accomplish some great things. Did he accomplish every you know dream he may have had as a child? You know, I don't know. Only he would know that. But you know, he was able to um, certainly capture a lot of um, you know what he believed in himself or was able to through the encouragement of others to believe in himself and was able to then turn around and, and give that back full circle. And what a, a testament to, uh, to a great man. And, and, uh, you know, you're well on your way to, uh, uh, fulfilling your own legacy, Byron. And, uh, it's exciting to, to be going along the journey with you. Well, you know, there's some really exciting things happening. Um, I like to think that my dad's up there looking down and, and, uh, advising, uh, uh, the, the universe as to what what comes into my into my space, but um, yep. <laughs> you know I I uh, I, I feel very uh, very fortunate to be still keeping the uh, Billy Casper Golf Academy idea uh, alive and business alive. Um, we're going to be expanding that in the near future to three different academy locations. And then on top of that, I'm I'm very very grateful to be working with a company uh, like PHG because. Uh, PHG is uh, I'm managing two golf courses for them, uh, which are the courses that are in the prize, uh, right? And um, and the hotels as well um, are run and, and owned by PHG, and they're one of the few environmentally friendly, forward-thinking companies that it's my pleasure to work with because they're trying to make a difference, um, right? And they're making a difference in not just society. Uh, with their youth pro programs and their charity programs, but they're making a difference with uh, the environmental impact that their hotels and especially their golf courses are having. And so it's an exciting time to be alive in the golf world and, and in the world in general. And I love what you said a moment ago, Ted, about adults sometimes not having the ability to dream. Um, yeah. Because if there's something I can say to everybody listening right now, and that is don't, don't ever stop dreaming. My, no. my father told me that. Um, and so if you want to take some great advice from Billy Casper, never stop dreaming. Right. Absolutely never stop dreaming. Yeah. When you stop dreaming, you stop living. And that's, uh, you know, true in so many ways. And, and, you know, again, sometimes things don't always happen, maybe the way you would like them. Um, but that doesn't mean you give up on your dreams. Uh, dreams are there for a reason, and um, it just sometimes might take some adjustments. Um, I want to very quickly just run through uh, the contest again uh, that Byron and I are, are presenting here through Golf Talk Live. Uh, it's a major champion, we call it, because it's involved wrapped around the majors. Uh, it's a couples contest or couples retreat, you can call if if you really want to. Uh, here's what you um, get a chance to win. Uh, you get a night uh, a bed and breakfast at the Hacienda Hotel in Old Town, San Diego. It uh, also includes Golf for Two at the Salt Creek Golf Club. Uh, on your second night, of course, is uh, again at the uh, bed and breakfast at the Palm Mountain Hotel and Spa. And that also includes a Golf for Two at the Encina uh, Golf Club, which uh, you just mentioned are, are um, environmentally friendly. So we're always uh, happy about that to, uh, to uh, some great organizations that are, are um, trying to make a difference in the world. And uh, for those lucky recipients of, of this couple's uh, retreat, if you will, uh, get an opportunity to meet Byron himself, uh, son of legendary Billy Casper, and have lunch with him at the Old Town uh, Tequila Factory. And uh, he's going to be yeah, hosting perhaps, you there. Perhaps a tequila tasting or two. And, and, it, and yeah, and if you survive uh, lunch and you think you can uh, do some tequilas as well, um, by all means, uh, Byron will, will help you navigate <laughs> down that pathway as well. And he's also going to be throwing in a, a, a 
a copy of uh, Billy Casper's uh, last book, The Big Three and Me, and I, I can assure you it's a great read. Some great information there. Uh, as I said, the prize, uh, just a little over $1,000, so it's a great package. Um, we're very excited to bring it, and, and here's all you have to do. It's real simple, guys. Uh, I'll give you the email address in just a second. Um, we want you over this major and the next three majors, the U.S. Open, the Open, and uh, the PJ Championship, we want you to uh, predict who you think the winner will be. Send an email and include your full name, uh, your contact information, uh, who you think the winner of, of this weekend's event at the Masters is going to be, and uh, and who you think the winner of the U.S. Open is going to be, and the Open, um, uh, the British Open, and the uh, PGA Championship. Who you think the winners are going to be? Uh, you can send an email for each event. Uh, the deadline will be the Friday, so tomorrow night uh, for the Masters. You must have your entry in no later than midnight on Friday. Uh, and again, for the U.S. Open, British, uh, and the PGA Championship, on that Friday of the event at midnight, you must have your entry in. And the email address, again, uh, is golftalklivecontest at gmail.com. That's golftalklivecontest at gmail.com. So send your entries in. You can do so right now. Uh, pick who you think is going to win the Masters. Um, you're welcome to pick uh, for the other three majors as well if you want to, but uh, it's not necessary. I would suggest to uh, do the smart thing. This calls for a little strategy. Uh, enter your uh, who you predict for the Masters uh, tonight or tomorrow by midnight, and then wait uh, as we get a little closer, see who's playing in the U.S. Open, and by Friday on that midnight, and then so on and so forth through the other four majors. And if you're lucky to get any one of them uh, guessed correctly, uh, you will be entered in for the draw, which will take place the following Thursday, the first Thursday that follows the PGA Championship, which I believe is in August. So um, whatever Thursday, I don't have the date, I'll make sure that's put up there. Um, but the first Thursday after the PGA Championship, um, we will draw a name from the hat of all the uh, the winners. And a lucky couple will win the uh, first inaugural Golf Talk Live Major Champion uh Couples contest uh, presented by uh, yours truly and of course Mr. Byron Casper and the great folks at the Hacienda Hotel, Salt Creek Golf Club, and the uh, Palm uh, Mountain Spa. And uh, I'm going to put up their website links as well, uh, Byron, so that uh, folks can go and check out uh, these great facilities. Uh, That's great. And uh, again, thank you, Byron, for, for joining us tonight uh, on Golf Talk Live. Always a pleasure. And Byron is going to be joining me. Uh, on the Thursday Eve on the U.S. Open, the British Open, and also on the PGA Championship, and then again the week following the PGA uh, to announce our winner. So uh, put your thinking caps on. You have until midnight tomorrow night to submit. That's golftalklivecontest at gmail.com is where you send your submission. Uh, Byron, appreciate it as always. Thank you very much. And uh, totally I look my pleasure, Ted. Yeah, I look forward to having you uh, come back on uh, many, many times, and I will uh, talk to you beforehand, but uh, you'll be back on the Thursday eve of the U.S. Open, and uh, have fun watching the Masters this weekend. Well, and you know what? I hope you have a great time watching the Masters, too, and I'll leave you with two thoughts, uh, both of which uh, uh, are from uh, are from my father, uh, Billy. Uh, the first is, uh, don't be like the chronic golf cheater who marked a zero when he got a hole in one 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and two, keep your head down and follow through. And that's good advice in just about every walk of life. So, yep. um, so thanks for your time today, Ted. Uh, look forward to being uh, on with you again. And yep. happy golfing. And don't forget, uh, go to billyskids.com to get more information, uh, not only about the upcoming tournament on May 16th, uh, but also uh, to pitch in, maybe donate and uh, give back as Billy did for many years um, through uh, his great foundation uh, for the Casper Foundation. So go to Billy Kids, Billy's Kids, excuse me, dot com and uh, do what you can to help uh, some great young youngsters out there fulfill their dreams. Um, again, thank you, Byron, and uh, I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Ted. Have a great evening. All right. You too. Bye bye. Okay, that was my very special guest, uh, Byron Casper. Uh, had a great contest uh, that we announced tonight and talked a little bit about Augusta and also a little bit uh, shared some thoughts of uh, his father, the, uh, the late Billy Casper. Uh, I want to thank all of uh, those supporters uh, of the program, Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide, Meredith Kirk from Meredith Kirk Golf, uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, uh, Nikki, a great teacher professional, Mr. Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf, uh, Sean Kelly from linkedgolfers.com and uh, Mr. Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you very much for all your continued support and sponsorship of Golf Live. And particularly thank you to all of the uh, listeners worldwide for faithfully tuning in to Golf Talk Live each and every week. Uh, I certainly have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches, teach professionals, and authors and entrepreneurs stop by the show. And it's really through their participation and guest appearances that make to help uh, Golf Talk Live a first-class show. I will be posting on social media uh, and be reminding you each and every week uh, about the uh, current contest, and uh, I will be putting that up uh, tomorrow on Facebook uh, and through other social media, so you'll have all the details and uh, the rules as far as uh, participating in the uh, first Golf Talk Live Major Champion uh, Couples Contest. So thank you very much, everybody. God bless, and I will see you next Thursday right here on Golf Talk Live.